Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Trevor Clifford, this is Mark Gagné. How are you feeling, Mark? I'm feeling good. I feel like Faulkner with a MacBook, you know, trying to write a new novel and just searching his name on Twitter. Oh, uh, damn. How are you feeling? <laughs> I, feel like a, I feel like a rain puddle with a rainbow of oil on the surface. Oh, like a nice slick? A nice oil slick on the surface. Dude, it's funny that you say... Um, Faulkner with a MacBook because I think I talked on the podcast before about how I went to the Faulkner house when I was crossing the country mm -hmm. and um, it was funny like one of the college students working there she was sitting at like an iMac and I was like is that Faulkner's iMac <laughs> <laughs> and That's she was definitely she said she was it, like yeah. she was like stupid people like literally ask that and they're like what? How, did, how, do you, how do you have a computer <laughs> That's definitely going to be a, like a future, if not already, like an Apple commercial where it'll be like Hemingway and Faulkner like sitting at their desk typing away at the MacBook. Like, Well, also, there's plenty of probably really epic stuff right now. I mean, like the entire creative community is like sucked into the Apple uh, sphere. So right now, pretty much everything is made on Mac. So, yeah, yeah. it's funny. Um, so uh, what's going on, man? Yeah. So I thought for this week we could revisit uh, the little game we played called Six Word Stories or Flash Fiction, if you prefer. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, for those who didn't hear episode two, where we started that, this, uh, this is a game I came up with based on the famous Ernest Hemingway line, uh, for sale, baby shoes never worn, you know, in which a whole story is encapsulated in only six words. So in this game, Trevor and I take turns throwing book titles at each other, we have to summarize them or give our view, our uh, opinion on them or view or take or whatever on them in exactly six words. Like, for example, if you threw at me Animal Farm, I could say uh, four legs good, two legs better. Or, <laughs> or you know, something like thanks, thanks for the Pink Floyd album. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> thanks so for get the, your yeah that was the best <laughs> thing that came out of animal farm for sure <laughs> no political so, revolutions uh, or anything no no uh so get your counting fingers out again you know get get ready yeah so, exactly uh, and i have and i have I'll some prepared um and i have some prepared for stuff that i know you've read but yeah hit me with it okay nice all right uh first one the the three musketeers oh my god the Three Musketeers. I have I have an admission that I have not read the full Three Musketeers. I've read about like two hundred pages of it or so. Oh, oh shit! I didn't know that. <laughs> uh, no, no, that's that's completely fair. Um, six words for All the right, Three so Musketeers. Sum up the first two hundred pages. Uh, <laughs> friends can never be separated unless. <laughs> <laughs> dot 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 <laughs> all right <laughs> so uh so mine mine for this because i have not read it is uh fluffy whipped nougat covered with chocolate Ooh, very good bringing in the modern yeah. the modern reference actually three musketeers <laughs> for a while when i was a little kid three musketeers was like my candy bar but then at some point like after i hit puberty it turned into snickers yeah um, nice <laughs> did you know that like the candy bar was called that because it used to come in a pack of three and it was used to be like vanilla stra chocolate strawberry flavors. I did not know. So it was like a Neapolitan candy bar. Yeah, yeah. But then like World War II rationing restrictions mm. on, on sugar made them oh. just reduce it to chocolate, but they kept the name. Oh, that World War II, that'll change everything. Yeah. 
Damn. All right. Um, I got mine so for you. you. Mine, okay. I, I'll throw... Um, it's a Shakespeare play that I know you've read called Macbeth. Oh, God. <laughs> six words. Macbeth uh, and six words. Oh, no. Oh, I'm going to just terribly botch this. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, remember that you can pass. You are allowed to pass. Yeah, I can pass. No, I'm not going to pass. Uh, Macduff is the man. Wash hands. I don't <laughs> I can't. <laughs> wash your hands. Are you talking about uh, Lady Macbeth with her hands? Yeah, I was going to say, I was going to say, wash your hands. Not just, right. uh, not nah, too many, too many words, too many words. Too many I words. Might as well passed. I have the, uh, <laughs> I have the benefit of um, forethought on this. So I actually have two of them. My first one was yeah, uh, ambition sometimes means killing your king. <laughs> <laughs> And um, my second one was my wife is really into power. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice. Okay. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so your turn. Okay. Um, Carrie by Stephen King. Oh my god. Um, uh, getting invited to prom really sucks. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that I don't have enough words for that. Yeah, something about prom and pig's blood. I wanted to get pig's blood in there somehow. Um, <laughs> some kind of menstruation metaphor. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, mine for that is uh, be nice to everyone just in case. Ooh, that is a good one. Yeah. Be nice to everyone just in case. I mean, that's a good rule anyways. You've read, you've read Carrie, right? Being killed. Yes. I like how, I think it's really interesting how... The original carry is like a fa it's like a found footage book, right? It's through like letters and newspaper articles and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think King ever wrote like that again. I don't think he ever like I, I'm struggling to think of another novel where he wrote where it's like sort of found footage like that or found. I don't think so. Letters. Unless he revisited it. You know, I don't know what that's called in the book world. I know it's called in the movie world. So I'm just yeah, calling it yeah. found footage. <laughs> found letters. Yeah. Um, let's keep rolling with the Stephen King um, theme. I'm going to ask you to summarize The Stand in six words. Oh, The Stand. Mm -hmm. uh, hmm. Get to Boulder. <laughs> good versus evil. Hey, that was pretty good <laughs> off the cuff. Get to Boulder, good versus evil. That was pretty good. Yeah. Um, mine, my pre-prepared one was survivors of disease kill the devil <laughs> um, nice randall flag is sort of like the devil kind of yeah uh he's a good yeah. proxy he's a he's a proxy well sort of in the dark tower he's like kind of kind of the devil yeah <laughs> all right hit me with your next one all right uh talking about faulkner earlier uh as i lay dying how about that Oh my God, as I lay dying, I know exactly, um, give me one second, but, um, <laughs> I wanted to do this one cause I thought of a good one. Uh, mine is six words weekend at Bernie's, but in past. 
Yeah. <laughs> that that book, we were talking about that the other day in the text message. Like that book, I was rereading that book recently and I was like, this is like the, what happens to the mom's corpse and as I lay dying, it's like a comedy <laughs> movie. They like throw it in a river. It's in like a burning barn. Yep. Yep. That's exactly where I went with it too. Uh, <laughs> Weekend of Bernie's. Well, yeah, no, uh, well-built coffin absorbs excessive abuse. Because <laughs> yeah. it does just, yeah. It, it, yeah, isn't it, it one of the, one like of the sons, luggage. one of the sons makes the coffin, right? Yeah. 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 And he, isn't that, that's the beginning of the book. He's making the coffin before she's dead, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. He's striking nails in it and all that stuff. Yeah. It's just one of those funny things where, you know, I think people are into Faulkner for his, the way that he writes and you're just enjoying the ride. But if you take a step back and think about what happens in that book, you're like, what the hell, man? <laughs> <laughs> I think that he sometimes is so into language that he he's like, you know, I mean, he's rolling in his grave as I say this, but the outline suffers for for the beauty of of the language. Yeah. Um my next one is of mice and men. Oh. Okay. The theme I'm following here is stuff that I know that you've read from school. Macbeth, okay. Mice and Men in high school. <laughs> Damn, it's testing my fucking memory, though. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it sucks because I can't remember their names exactly. Damn. <laughs> yeah, the two of them. Um, uh, heavy petting kills animals. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you pet the rabbit so hard you kill it big small yeah big small okay mine's like not that different even though it's pre-prepared so mine was big guy little guy murder friend <laughs> <laughs> there you go that works uh, isn't the big guy's name is lenny right yeah 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 lenny's the big guy damn okay um it's your turn. <clears throat> so I'm going to throw one out that I know you've read strictly because you talked about it on the podcast. So Ooh, okay. let's go with uh, Confessions of a Mask. Confessions of a Mask. Episode. That's what I did for the first yeah. episode. A six word summary of Confessions of a Mask. Um uh, uh, I'm going to like bastardize a Shakespeare quote and say, um, life is but a stage in Japan <laughs> or Japan. <laughs> <laughs> That's seven words, but life is but a stage, Japan. <laughs> Japan. Because <laughs> he kind of, even, even though I don't think he specifically references Shakespeare, that, that quote really makes me think of Confessions of a Mask, just like his idea that he's playing a part for eternity. Which is nice. funny because yeah. that's this that's the theme of another novel, um, no longer human. Another Japanese novel. It's kind of interesting that they're mm -hmm. they're both written like that. Um, my next one so is I, so I didn't know that. Well, I I mean I haven't read Confessions of a Mask, but mine was uh, and it's I don't even. So yours is based off of my review in the podcast. Yes. Okay. Yeah, but it's more about his life than uh, mm -hmm. than about the book. Right. Um, attempt coup just to feel something. Dude, that is a deep six-word story because it's 100% true. 
I think that Nishima <laughs> did attempt that coup only to try to feel something. And actually something that I really regret not coming up in that first episode, which I'll mention now. Another reason why I know about Mishima is because it is one of Paul Schrader's finest movies. He made a movie called Mishima. Paul Schrader is the person who wrote Taxi Driver. He's an incredible director as well. And uh, he wrote he wrote and directed a movie called Mishima Life in Four Chapters. And if you haven't seen that movie and you want an introduction to Mishima, check it out right now, because it's definitely one of the reasons why I was drawn to him. So nice. I felt bad. That was like almost like a correction from the first episode, because I felt bad. I never mentioned it. Um, <laughs> and my last my, this is my last one, but it's an impossible task. But that's why it's funny, because it's an impossible task. Again, we talk oh, about no. this. We talk about this novel as a punchline all the time. Um, but you got to bring it up for six word summary, infinite jests, summarize it in six oh. words. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> because we all know David Foster Wallace did it in six words as well. Um, Tennis Academy. What happened to Ortho? Oh. <laughs> is Ortho a lost leader in that? He kind of just like falls off the face of the novel. Yeah, he gets stuck in the window or something. I don't. I don't know. I don't really know what happens. Is Ortho the the, <laughs> crypt, the the son who's like handicapped? No, no, no. Orthostasis, which is one of the uh, one of the random tennis players. Oh, is that uh, the guy who holds a gun to his head? Nope. No. He's clearly. I need to read read Infinite Jest, which of course yeah, 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 doesn't take is, any time at all. Very, mis- <laughs> very mysterious <laughs> ending. With that, with that character uh, specifically, um, mine was my pre-prepared one. Obviously, yeah. got to put a lot, a little bit more thought into it. Was tennis sobriety and everything in between. With footnotes. With footnotes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool. That's all I have. Do you have any more? Uh, another one we just talked about a lot. Uh, Confederacy of Dunces. When I am with that. Confederacy of Dunces. Um, Never going to stop talking about that. <laughs> yeah, we're never going to stop talking about Confederacy Until of Dunces. It's going to come up yeah. in every single episode. Um, I'm yeah. going to go with a, with a detail from the story. Fat guy masturbates to his dog. <laughs> <laughs> That's him. Yeah. That's him. That's he does. He doesn't he like put on the he puts on those like dishwasher gloves. gloves. And thinks, yeah, yeah. Thinks about his dog when he's jerking off. Ah, uh, yeah, he's a freak. Yeah. Um, so mine was uh, a little bit more refined than that. <laughs> oh, oh. Yeah, yeah. Right. Abstemious in theory, gluttonous in reality. Wow. More than, just, more than just about food and it's about everything. You yeah. should apply you should apply the, you know to uh, Cornell writing with that one. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that one's your that one's your thesis. That would be funny to do sort of like a de- like a like a degree thesis that's like a six-word story. It'd be like, "Come on, dude." <laughs> <laughs> I put years into this yeah years simplicity complexity and simplicity that one was really good um yeah so so yeah that was six word stories again i think what we should do sometime soon once we bank enough episodes just uh have a segment where we summarize everything we've talked about so far six words i'm sorry i ruined that by asking you about your first one but no. If you want to ruin, if you want to ruin my first one, Warlock. Um, <laughs> yeah, do a six-word Warlock right now on the spot. Warlock is gunslinging only gets you so far. Mm, that's pretty good too. Six gunslinging words. only gets you so far. <laughs> um, 
Awesome. So I think I think uh, on this episode, episode ten means that I'm going first, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, so I'm just going to jump right into it. Not much of a bridge here, but the okay. um, the novel that I'm doing this week, I'm excited about because. I am bringing a novel to the table. I feel like every time we've done the podcast so far, I keep kind of gravitating towards something that's like a little bit more classic. I mean, I did, you know, um, I did Paul Beattie in The Sellout, which is in 2015. Um, this is also a more recent book, but I also feel like I just keep coming with these heavy hitters like, oh, like George Orwell and like whatever. <laughs> so a little bit less known author, but still an amazing author and a well and a well-established one. Um, I guess I'll ask you a question, Mark. Do you okay. think that, uh, do you hold out hope that when you're alive, this is something I think about all the time, during your lifetime, do you think that we will contact alien life? Not in my lifetime. That, that's too convenient. Yeah, I know. I, that's something that I think about all the time where I'm like, you know, we were born during like the advent of the internet and like a lot of like really amazing things, but that's something that I like lay awake at night and think like it would be so cool if, to be part of the generation that you're alive when people definitively say there's alien life on another planet and we know it. Yeah. Um, I so I think uh, the the author and the book that I'm introducing today, I think that she probably sat there many nights thinking the same thing. I am presenting the 1996 novel The Sparrow by Mary Doria Russell. Have I, do you know if I've talked to you about this book? I don't think so. No, okay. that doesn't ring a bell. So there's this novel called The Sparrow. Um, Mary Doria Russell, this is her first novel, which is really impressive because it won as a first novel. It's 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 well regarded both in sci-fi circles and in literary circles. But it's also an interesting case for kind of looking at a novel and saying, yeah, oh, it's like defined in one way. Because obviously, like I just asked you about like aliens and, and it's like, it's sci-fi, it's science fiction. But I think a lot of people kind of put it into a category with, with other sci-fi novels, which definitely fits well in. But it also, some people say, oh, it's a bit more than that, which I think is a little pretentious too. A sci-fi novel can be oh. a classic novel. So yeah, yeah. Um, this is Mary Doria Russell's first novel. It won the Arthur C. Clarke Award, the James Tiptree Jr. Award, um, the British Science Fiction Association Award. So basically she came out on the scene and people were like, this woman is amazing. Um, just a little bit about Mary Doria Russell. She's super cool. Um, she's also like pretty deeply academic. She has... Her BA is cultural anthropology from University of Illinois. She has an MA in social anthropology from Northeastern. And then she also has her PhD in biological anthropology from the University of Michigan. So she's rocking a lot of degrees. She's definitely um, a very academic person, very smart. And all of her novels, she's written more than just The Sparrow. Um, I think she's written about six or seven books. Um, she's well known for doing a lot of research, but um, at the same time, like I mentioned, this is a sci-fi book. It has to do with aliens. So at the same time that there's a lot of research in her books, they're also very, um, they can be fantastical. They're extremely human. She's great at writing characters. Um, I wanted to go into a little bit of the plot. So I think I'll probably summarize the plot in this a little bit more than talking about the author herself. But um, okay, the plot of this book is really cool. And um, a lot of her 
sort of personal history with religion comes into um, her writing, not through, like pretty much throughout all of her writing, there are conversations about God and religion, but also um, in this book, there's a lot about religion as well. So I'll give you a plot summary and, and let you know how that all fits in. So the plot of the Sparrow is the SETI program. Do you know the SETI program, Mark? Like searching for intelligent light. It stands for something. I forget what it stands for. Yeah, yeah. I've, I have um, heard of that. So it's S-E-T-I. It's a real program in the real world. And it's basically a branch of NASA or the government or a few space agencies kind of putting the feelers out there into the galaxy for intelligent life. So in the Sparrow, and I actually- like I heard that x-files or something yeah yeah for sure it's definitely been in x-files a few times yeah um and you can imagine you know like like you like we always say visualizations about books and stuff like that you can imagine this book as an amazing x-files episode without Mulder and scully and then that would be it but um <laughs> it's funny that the so this was written in 1996 but the year that the events occurs in 2019 dun 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 oh so um that's coming up along with the plot of Akira, because Akira happens for those in 2019. Listening, <laughs> for those listening, that's this year. That's this year. Yes, exactly. Yeah. For, for the aliens listening to this broadcast in, in the deep <laughs> future. So let me get into the plot. So in 2019, the SETI program identifies a legitimate alien signal, and they decode it basically as saying, we know that this is music from intelligent life. Like we are listening to, even though they don't understand the signal that they're receiving, it has the intonations and like the repetition where they're like, this is definitely some form of music or communication. So the way that um, Mary Doya Russell brilliantly folds religion into this metaphor of uh discovering alien life is that the first mission is organized kind of in secret by Jesuit priests. Um, I don't know if uh, listeners or Mark, you know, know much about the history of the Jesuits. I'm certainly not a religious scholar that knows a lot about the Jesuits, but what I do know is that they, as part of their kind of religious fervor, they believe in learning as like part of their religion. So, um, and that's also a bit of a metaphor because Jesuit priests were also often, um, when the world wasn't fully discovered, they were the types to go out into the world and say, we're going to discover this, or we're going to, they were big writers of history and stuff like that. Um, and, uh, okay. so the main character of the books, and actually there's two books, it's the Sparrow. And then there's also a sequel called children of God, which is also a great book, but I would say the Sparrow is definitely the the best one. Um, mm -hmm. The main character is a linguist and Jesuit priest named Emilio Sandos. And you will fall in love with Emilio when you're reading this book. It's that type of book that you can take off the shelf, like a New York Times bestseller type of thing where she's so good at writing this main character. He's super warm. He's super charming. He's super funny. And he's just like an all around great guy. And basically a really kind of uh, like a secret body of Jesuit scientists and priests come forward and say, Emilio, you're going to put together a team and you're going to go in a spaceship that's going to go to this planet where this signal is coming from. So that's where the sci-fi element comes in. Um, and this novel has like a, a non-linear narrative because um, you learn about the mission, but you also learn that in 2060, Emilio comes back a changed man and you don't know why yet. So he left the planet warm, fuzzy and super intelligent. He comes back to the planet 
sort of jaded about religion and mm-hmm. God and God's will. So basically what you're learning throughout um, the novels is why he's so jaded. Uh, this is the type of novel where I'm not going to spoil it because that's kind of part of the whole thing. But let's just say yeah, he comes I'm, back. I'm and, way too curious, but yeah, he comes <laughs> back a changed man. Um, a little bit more about the, like how this novel operates as um, a metaphor. Um when his team of scientists, which is also a great cast of characters, it's one of those books where you learn everyone's name and you're totally in love with all of them. And they do think they sort of come alive and you know how they're going to react to certain things just because of how great a character writer Mary Dory Russell is. Um, when they get to the planet, there's lots of cool sort of um, sci-fi elements. She creates this race of aliens where the planet actually has two quote unquote classes of sentient beings and so there's like an upper class and a lower class, um, basically like an agricultural class and like a godlike sort of the people who made the signal, basically. Yeah. And obviously humans coming into that environment, they're sort of like, well, this is fucked up. You know, like there should be a revolt like you guys are shouldn't be slaves, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But I think I read in an article once or maybe in an interview with Mary Doya Russell that um not only is the destructive power of mis- like like missionaries going out into the world and writing history um, factored into this novel, but I think it's also a metaphor. I think I read somewhere for um, Western expansion into Native America. So it's basically like it's it's playing with the idea of like when you arrive on a planet, you arrive on this alien planet, and we want to understand it with our understanding, and there's just no way to do that. Yeah, you want to you want it to reflect you, but you want it to reflect you, and there's not. a lot of interesting sort of projection. And obviously, because uh, Mary Joya Russell does deep research, her characters are kind of motivated by the philosophy behind you know God's will and the will of God and all just different stuff like that. And it's just sort of fascinating because you really start to think about like what would it mean if you went into an unknown land like. Nowadays, we can land anywhere on the planet, open up Google Maps, and it tells us, you know, where to go and what to do. But here you're dealing with like two cultures that she made up, but are still very like vibrant and alive. There are characters on the alien planet that you get to know and love. Um, but really, the the lesson of both of the novels is that you can't understand that type of stuff. And I'll just give you a little Easter egg that that's why Emilio changes so much because it's impossible to understand these alien cultures. And it just, it gives a really great sci-fi context to the real concept of sending people um, on explorations. And it has an incredible personal and cultural cost. Once you even start writing history, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's like, you think, you think you're socially awkward now, right? Go yeah. try it. <laughs> um, so, I mean, there's lots of great quotes about this book. I hope it sounds intriguing to read because it is one of those books where I just want to like let you know a little bit of the plot and then say go at it because it's just it's just such a great book. This book came to me literally jumped off of the bookshelf from a high school friend's house. So I was just like, oh, what's this book? Started reading it. And I was like, this book is incredible. Um, Nancy Pearl, who is somebody, uh, a reviewer for the library journal, she's on the side of saying, you know, it's more than just sci-fi. Uh, she says it's not sci-fi. It's a philosophical novel about the nature of good and evil and what happens when a man tries to do the right things for the right reasons and ends up 
causing incalculable harm. So, um, you know, there's a lot of great uh, thing like, you know, wander, wanderings about God, um, wanderings about the universe. Obviously, Mary Dory Russell is super intelligent, super well-researched. Um, I can read a few books from the story. Um, I mean, a few quotes from the story, but um, this is one where the, this is a quote from the book that where the title of the sparrow comes from. Okay. Yeah. I'm really curious about her writing style now. Yeah, she's she's amazing. She's really good. So um, and she really knows how to give weight to things and stuff like that. So this is from the Sparrow. There's an old Jewish story that says in the beginning, God was everywhere and everything, a totality. But to make creation, God had to remove himself from some part of the universe. So something besides himself could exist. So he breathed in and in the places where God withdrew, their creation exists. And then the next quote is, so God just leaves? No. He watches, he rejoices, he weeps. He observes the moral drama of human life and gives meaning to it by caring passionately about us and remembering. Matthew 10, verse 29. Not one sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it, your father being God. But the sparrow mm -hmm. still falls. <laughs> so it's sort of, it's like a lot of really kind of interesting you know, I'm not somebody who's, you know, reading a lot of books about interpretation of the Bible and stuff like that. But she she slips in a lot of kind of religious interpretation through the book. Um, the reason why it's called The Sparrow. I think there's like, uh, you know, there's there's that quote basically from from Matthew 10 verse 29 um, about the sparrow falling to the ground. And I think also maybe she uses it as a double meaning, like something like the the ship in the in the sci-fi book is called the sparrow um and i read a few interviews with mary doria russell that basically um you know she was religious her her um upbringing was religious she was catholic um says she left the church at a young age you know you know how that is it's basically like your parents raised you and then you start kind of thinking more about it she was in a military family so i wouldn't be surprised if they I think she grew up around Chicago. I don't think that they did the classic moving around too much, but I haven't read her full biography, mm -hmm. so please don't quote me exactly on that. Another cool sort of <laughs> one of the reasons I wanted to do her on the podcast as well is because um, another cool little detail about Mary Dory Russell is I actually like this book so much that in college with my college email, which is now lost to me, you know, when you leave school and they like delete your inbox. But with my yeah. college email, I once emailed her and she emailed me back and she's really nice um i emailed awesome. her like from her website and i asked her because um i just think the sparrow would make such a cool movie and she kind of told me on the sly she was like the i kind of know this now from from just the business that i'm in and stuff like that but the sparrow is definitely optioned you know for a movie in the future but when those things happen, it's like it can sit on the shelf for decades, but it is, yeah. it is. So I asked her about that and she was like, it is optioned for a film, but like basically those types of contracts, that's all she knows about it. Like the author is sort of supposed to be completely hands off at that point. Um, I think that this, I would, you know, I would be the first person to buy a ticket to this movie because it's just such a cool movie idea and just a cool book in general. Um, it's a really personal story, but it also folds in all this sci-fi stuff. And, um, 
Yeah, I mean, that's that's Mary Dory Russell. Check out The Sparrow. This one was a pretty short one for me, but she has other novels, including A Thread of Grace, Dreamers of the Day, Doc, and her most recent novel, 2015, is called Epitaph. I've only read The Sparrow and Children of God. She seems to have sort of a theme where she writes like two books instead of a trilogy. So so Doc in 2011 and Epitaph in 2015 are related. I don't know if there's going to be a third one. Um. But yeah, a great writer, um, sci-fi that is not exactly sci-fi. It really lifts beyond that. And uh, yeah, The Sparrow by Mary Doria Russell. Check it out. That sounds awesome. Um, yeah. I was wondering, who who did you cast in your head when you're thinking about this as a movie? Oh, um, you know what? That's like the character. The character of Emilio Santos, I think would be... he. I think in the movie, he starts out... I mean... <laughs> the movie in the book i think he starts out as kind of like an old man um but obviously that whole like thing of when you leave the planet out into the universe and come back and everyone's 50 years older but you're still the same i think i would make emilio sandos like an older al pacino so like how al pacino is now would probably be okay like really good um i think that he is um a specific nationality yeah in the in the book he's a puerto rican linguist and jesuit so father sandos is a you know if you want to go that way but yeah i, I would definitely say that al pacino i also just recently watched godfather one and two i rewatched it so i'm i'm all about the acting powers of al pacino right now <laughs> um but yeah i mean I hope it sounds like an interesting book, like a sci-fi book that really brings you down into thinking about God and the universe. And pretty much every time you put this book down, you're just thinking, um, damn, like what, what happened, you know, what would happen with, with aliens? There's just no way to predict what would happen. And, and really makes you reflect about how at one time we didn't know what everything was on the earth either. Um, so it's it's a really cool book and and I hope there's enough mystery there for you guys to go check it out. There's a lot of mystery there. Uh, I'm curious. Does does the music hold any significance? Like you're saying that that's how they made the contact initially. Like it makes me like wonder what their culture was like. Yeah, it does. It it's sort of like just it's a random occurrence. It's hard to describe. You know, like when you're reading a book, you can't really think. Oh, I know exactly what that alien music would sound like. So it's sort of hard <laughs> to describe in that way. But it does. It does have significance, and it actually does. Um, the The music and the ceremony that is around um, the aliens there has a lot to do with how Emilio changed. Oh, okay. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, it's cool. And it's and it's really, you know, she keeps everything in context. So universe, God, politics back on Earth, what happens when he gets back, all that stuff is kind of folded in in an, in an interesting, interesting way. Okay, another question. Mm -hmm. uh, how did she do at describing uh, the world of 2019? Was it the hellscape? Uh, we have now or was it idealized she, start, she starts the book with saying trump is president no uh even yeah. <laughs> even even mary doria russell is not that imaginative um she, she called it before the simpsons yeah no yeah um <laughs> no like i uh, to be honest the the amount of time that they spend on earth is not that significant especially in the beginning of this oh, okay. book it's basically okay. like 
hey, we found out this like crazy alien signal. Now you're going to get on this spaceship and leave the Earth. Um, gotcha. Okay. So it's more about the interim between now and then 2060 or whatever. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So All yeah. Right. That was awesome. Yeah. Mary Doyer Russell. Check that out. It's really good. So now I'll kick it over to Mark. Mark, you're about to give me a little, uh, give me your shitty book report. Yeah. So, uh, so you jumped right to it and I'm feeling disorganized. So I couldn't, you know, my book report this week is going to be a mess. Uh, but hopefully, you know, it's an enter- entertaining mess. Uh, I've been feeling disorganized this week. So I'm, you know, we're always entertained by you, Mark. <laughs> I'm going to rant a little. I'm going to bounce around a little bit. Um, so I've got like a couple intros. I'm just going to do them both. Uh, first up, I want to talk about garbage. Okay. Can I talk about trash, litter, etc. Um, it's everywhere. And it's obvious that the way we deal with waste on this planet is horrible. Mm. Um, plastic packaging, cheaply made goods, planned obsolescence, you know, single-use items in the name of convenience. Mm. It all contributes to clutter when we hoard it and landfills when we get rid of it. Yeah. Um, no matter no matter ever vanishes, it can at most change its form. Rubbish is immortal. It pervades the air, swells up in water, dissolves, rots, disintegrates, changes into gas, into smoke, into soot. It travels across the world and gradually engulfs us. Hmm. Well, I'm scared. The book I brought today, <laughs> the book I brought today that I just actually quoted. Uh, had me thinking about this, and it's parallels to the human mind. Like the excessive packaging and single-use waste, our mm-hmm. minds have that too. You know, when we get stressed out or even excited about something, we can obsess about details and what may happen, and we get mind clutter. Do you mm-hmm. have mind clutter? <laughs> I definitely have. I think I have a... My mind is not efficient at getting rid of the clutter so it builds up and then and then explodes um but yeah definitely perfect yeah um so so you know we play scenarios in our heads of future events that run the gamut from an incredible triumph to a devastating failure and you know everything in between but once the real experience that we've been fretting over or being you know looking forward to is over likely in some mundane fashion that our brains overlooked from being too creative to imagine something that dull, you know, all that stress that built up becomes useless. Mm. You know, it took up so much space and then turned it to nothing like the giant bag of spinach. Once you cook it, uh, <laughs> you can build the goddamn great wall of China in your mind and then reduce it to rubble instantaneously. Right. And you know, where does that go? Uh, like you're saying, tidying up your mind. I think we need like a Marie Kondo for our brains. Um, <laughs> have, you, have you watched or heard about that show? If it doesn't spark joy, get rid of it. I haven't watched the yeah. show yet, but I know her because um, I actually bought the book like way back oh. in the beginning when it for, when it was first like a hot sensation when her book yeah. came out. Um, I I own a copy of it. I can't say I'm the biggest fan of her method, but um, yeah. Marie Kondo. The show's good, though. You should check out the show. Yeah, um, I should check it out. Okay, uh, new topic, because I told you I had two. 
yeah, told you I was disorganized and I didn't have a good transition. That goes here, with the theme. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of clutter. You're it's perfect. So I want to ask you, what was your first job? I think I know the answer, but. Um, my first job was I was, I worked in the stock room of a New England grocery store chain called Shaw's. Yeah. S-H-A-W-S. Okay. And actually I worked in, in the, in one of the busier Shaw's in the New England area. That's what they used to tell us like every day when we started oh. work, they'd be like, this is one of the busiest ones. <laughs> so do you remember what would go through your head, what would go through your head, you know, when you worked? Like, let's say you're doing some mindless task. Like, do you remember your thoughts, your daydreams? Were they more hopeful or were they like, get me out of here? They were definitely get me out of here because I started <laughs> I started out as like the stock room, which in terms in, in grocery store hierarchy, being in the stock room is like a pretty sweet gig. Like you don't deal with the public as much and you sort of are just stocking the shelves as efficiently as possible. But yeah. I was a really irresponsible teenager and I would like... I would have like 20 minutes left and be like, oh, I should do like half a pallet of stuff, but I'm actually just going to go home. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, um, you know, I spent years as a dishwasher and like a line cook. I remember how much your mind wanders and, you know, random things invade your thoughts uh, and you're thinking of anywhere but where you're at. Mm -hmm. um, I think this is a big thing. It's a big thing with millennial culture. I think like there's a lot of creative people who have boring day jobs so that they can, you know, pursue and fund those creative things in their free time. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, a lot of time they've probably got their mind elsewhere. Um, I mean, you lived, you've lived in some big cities. Like how much of that did you see like creatives in the gig economy or doing something else? I'm sure it was all over the place. Like, that's everybody. I mean, that's happening on this yeah. podcast right now. Like everyone, who, <laughs> everyone out there who has a podcast is probably their side gig with some other thing that's going on. I know a lot of comedians and, and gig film people and stuff like that. And it's like, yeah, yeah. I know there's that, that's, that's everybody. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I thought. Um, so anyway, I think like, the thoughts and ideas that spring up, you know, when you're performing some kind of labor, manual labor or other work you're not really invested in. I think those are really interesting. Like, you know, it's partly boredom, but it's also survival. You know, people need to have their sights set on something, even if it's just like the end of their shift. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, I've been rambling a little bit, but that style perfectly fits the book I have today which is Love and Garbage by Ivan Klima. Have you heard of him? No, Love and Garbage. Yeah, it's a cool title, right? Um, so Klima, he's a Czech author from Prague. Uh, he was born in 1931, so he was a child during the German invasion of the country mm. in uh, 1938. Oh. Okay, yep. So his family, his family, which had did some distant Jewish ancestry, they survived four years at the uh, Terezin concentration camp. Including him. Where he, yeah, yeah, his whole family was there. Wow. It's, uh, and he was separated from his, his father. Mm -hmm. um, but that's, you know, where he discovered his love for writing. So liberation eventually came with the end of World War II. However, that brought the rise of the Czech communist regime, mm -hmm. which was essentially just a replacement oppressive force. Uh, you know, that jailed or murdered people who opposed them. Mm -hmm. So Klima's work really had no choice but to be heavily influenced by his exposure to 
human cruelty and struggle under uh, totalitarian regimes. Mm-hmm. And his work was actually banned in his home country after the Prague Spring political a, protests of a number 1968. One, a number one indicator that it should be read. Yes. If your book is um, banned, then you're then you're at the top of my list, my friend. <laughs> so after that Prague Spring, um, that was when the newly established um, Soviet-backed government instituted full censorship mm-hmm. in the country, and it remained banned until <clears throat> the uh, Velvet Revolution of 1989, and that's when Czechoslovakia moved away from the one-party communist government. Mm-hmm. You're throwing out. Uh, you're saying you've not, you're not very prepared, but you're throwing out these dates. Like I feel like I'm reading the textbook. This is good. <laughs> no, I learned a lot about this uh, through some research. But so Klima, I mean, he's often compared to uh, Milan Kundera, you know, the uh, unbearable lightness of being, right? Yeah, that author uh, whose work was also banned in the country. So you know, they were both they were contemporaries. They're both publishing their works outside of their home country during that uh, you know 21 year span. I do. I think they do have a similar style. I'm not sure if they're friends or rivals, but I'm sure they're one of the two. Mm. Um, so, Love and Garbage came out in 1986, so right before the, that Velvet Revolution, and um, you'll see why it's called that soon. Let me start by saying that to me, this is you know one of those novels where the prose is more important than the plot, mm-hmm. and I could see its effect on me in my thoughts when I was trying to put this book report together. Mm-hmm. Like that beginning, you know, it got my brain working in a different way. I was, you know, constructing poetic thoughts about random crap. Or, you know, <laughs> at least I thought they were poetic. <laughs> Much like Faulkner's uh, As I Lay Dying when they throw the grandma's corpse around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so this book, Love and Garbage, it's uh, semi-autobiographical. It's about a band writer living in Prague who's cheating on his wife that's the love part, uh, who's also working as a street sweeper because he can't get published. And that's the garbage part. Uh, Uh, So the majority, yeah, the majority of the book tracks his thoughts throughout the day as he's with his coworkers picking garbage off the streets. And it's kind of, it's a deceptively simple story. But what makes it interesting to read is that the narrator jumps around in time and space without warning. Like it's a, uh, it's a, it is a stream of consciousness style. Like it jumps around from his childhood surviving the Prague ghetto uh, to his love for writing, the complicated life of adultery and dissatisfaction he lives, uh, a lot of focus on the work of Franz Kafka, who he adores, like that's who he studies and that's what he's trying to uh, write about. And uh, also, you know, his ruminations on a million different things. I I really love authors that dissect another author within yeah within context yeah there's a lot of that in here um so the the plot may not like really move like you'd want it to like the main character might piss you off because of the immorality in his relationships like you don't really empathize with his angst about his adultery and, and all that um and you know the novel itself may be lacking suspense in the plot but the prose here is excellent you know it's strong enough in my opinion, to make up for those other deficiencies. Um, like I said, it's a unique kind of stream of consciousness voice that I was trying to talk about. Um, like with the point about our first jobs and how the mind can wander and different thoughts bounce around. Yeah. And it's like, you know, I remember like 
thinking about creative stuff. And it's like, if you have a profound thought when you're doing that, you like, you need to capture it or like, it's mostly, most likely gone. That's one of the things I think, you know, going through life and trying to be creative. I think there's, um, I think it's like a, uh, a quote from Steven Spielberg where he says, listen to the, the, like the tiny whisper in your head. Yeah. Cause if you don't, if you just keep silencing it and you don't write it down or you don't take it seriously, then like, that's the only thing that you can hold on to. Yeah. Yeah, it's it'll be gone. Um, so yeah, keep a notebook with you or get the notes app on your phone. You know, <laughs> anyone out there is all our uh, writers and and all that. So, anyways, they say you should write about what you know, and so I kind of love it when writers write about writing. And I mm. covered that a little bit last week, but um, so yeah, I want I want to read a section that is centered on this idea where like the main character is talking about how he found his calling in literature. Cool. Which, which I mean, you got to think is really just, you know, Klima's confessions about his own life's work. Definitely. Uh, anyways, here it goes. When I learned after the war that all those I had been fond of, all those I had known were dead, gassed like insects and incinerated like refuse, I was gripped by despair. Almost every night I would walk by their sides, entering with them into enclosed spaces. We were all naked, and suddenly we were beginning to choke. I tried to scream, but I was unable to, and I heard the rattle in the others' throats, and I could see their faces turning into grimaces and losing their shape. I awoke in terror, afraid to go to sleep again, and my eyes roamed feverishly through the empty darkness. At that time, I slept in the kitchen, near the gas cooker. I'd get up time and again to make sure no gas was escaping. It was clear to me that I had only been spared through some oversight, some omission that might be put right at any moment. In the end, I was so crushed by horror and fear that I fell sick. The doctors shook their heads over my disease, unable to understand how a microbe could have gotten into my heart, but they never thought of the real gateway. They prescribed bed in absolute quiet, but in that quiet, I was able to surround myself with my friends, who had turned into specters, and spend with them all that slowly passing time and be drawn into their world, in which time no longer passed at all. I told no one about them, but I was with them, and they invited me to them. They repeated their invitation so persistently that I understood that I too was to die. But I was still afraid of death, so much afraid of it I didn't dare to look in the mirror. Thus I spent weeks in immobility, until one day my mother brought me War and Peace in three volumes, put them on my bedside table, and told me not to pick them up myself, they were too heavy. I really was weak, I could hardly lift one of the volumes, although they were just ordinary books. But when my mother handed me a volume, I propped it up against my knees and read lying down. And as I read, I was gradually transported into a different society. At times it occurred to me that the people I was reading about were also dead by now, that they had, that they had to die even if death did not overtake them on the pages of the book. Yet at the same time, though they were dead, they were living. It was then I realized the amazing power of literature and of the human imagination generally, to make the dead live and to stop the living from dying. I was seized by wonder at this miracle, at the strange power of the author, and there began to spring up within me a longing to achieve something similar. I asked my mother to buy me some exercise books, and when I was on my own, I began to put together my own experiences and to give back their lives to those who were no longer alive. At that moment, as though miraculously, they uh, rigidified, cold and dismal features increasingly began to fade. When the doctor allowed me to get up six months later, all the dead faces had dissolved as though clearing out of my way. I was no longer able to command them, and if anyone had shown me a picture of any of my dead friends, I'd have said, I don't know him. But it was not the oblivion of death, nor the oblivion so common in our day when the dead 
and even some of the living are concealed forever by a blanket of silence, one of which, one which even swallows up speech. Instead, it was a different kind of remembrance, one which lifted the incinerated from the ashes and tried to raise them up to new life. So I lived again, and the doctor was pleased at the miracle wrought by some new tablets he'd prescribed for me, but I knew why I was alive. So long as I was able to write, I'd be able to live. I'd be free from my specters. I know that to this day, and I also know that nothing on earth can disappear, that even the picture of a young girl mur murdered long ago would remain latently somewhere, maybe in my mind, that it would rise from its depths just as her soul rose above the earth and the waters. Well, so it's a pretty cool, you know, genesis of his uh, writing career. Yeah, it's so sad. Kind of some powerful imagery, yeah. Yeah. Um, that's like that's like the biggest testament to Tolstoy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. But you said he's um, obsessed with Kafka? Yes. Talks about him a lot. And uh, there's, I'm going to go into that in a second. But um, first, so like a lot of the book here, it's about his long-term extramarital affair with an artist. So an artist who he sort of idealizes and the guilt he has towards his wife, who's very trusting. Mm. And, you know, also with the, the garbage accumulated in his soul from his world of lies. Um, like I said, you don't really empathize with him about that part, but it's still kind of profound, like the way he talks about it. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because I was so deeply empathizing with him when you were reading that. Like, it was, like, really emotional. Um, but to, but to you know, hear that second side is sounds interesting. Yeah. Um, so, like, the story can get lost a little in his musings, but, like, the musings are more interesting than the story. Um, he thinks about his position as a street sweeper a lot and, like, the poetry inherent in trash. Uh, I just want to read, like, a quick paragraph, like, an example of that. As we walked on through the deserted little wood, there was more and more rubbish on the ground, and not only on the ground. Even the branches of the trees were festooned with translucent tatters of plastic. At every gust of the wind, they touched, interlocked, and embraced like a crazy, like a pair of crazy lovers, and in doing so, they emitted a rustling sound, and with the sound came the smell of rotting, mold, and mildew. Even the road up Mount Olympus, Daria, who's the mistress, had told me, led through rubbish, and even the way up Fujiyama, which she'd also climb, was lined with garbage. On Mount Everest, just below its summit, lay drums, abandoned tents, and plastic containers. Even a crashed helicopter is said to be rusting there. My dear Lita, who's the wife, is mistaken when she thinks that sweepers must feel ostracized or humiliated. They might, on the contrary, if they cared about such things, regard themselves as the salt of the earth, as healers of a world in danger of choking. Well... I wonder if uh, his writing inspired the plastic bag scene from American Beauty. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> the beauty and the image garbage blowing in the wind. <laughs> um, so yeah, I want to talk about that cap, that uh, Kafka part too. Let's just read another quick section. Doing terrible with reading today, but I'll, I'll go for it. <laughs> We're here for you. We have been. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> We have been expelled from paradise, but paradise was not destroyed, Kafka wrote. And he added, in a sense, the expulsion from paradise was a blessing, because if we hadn't been driven out, paradise would have had to be destroyed. The vision of paradise persists within us, and with it also the vision of togetherness. For in paradise, there is no such thing as isolation, 
man lives there in the company of angels and in the proximity of God. In paradise we shall be ranged in a higher and eternal order, which eludes us on earth where we are cast, where we are outcast. We long for paradise and we long to escape from loneliness. We attempt to do so by seeking a great love, or else we blunder from one person to another in the hope that someone will at last take notice of us, will long to meet us, or at least talk to us. Some write poetry for this reason, or go on protest marches, cheer some figure, make friends with the heroes of television serials, believe in gods or in revolutionary comradeship, turn into informers to ensure they are sympathetically received at least at some police department, or they strangle someone. Even murder is an encounter between one man and another. Out of his isolation, man can be liberated not only by love, but also by hate. Hate is mistakenly regarded as the opposite of love, where in reality it stands alongside love, and the opposite of both of them is loneliness. We often believe that we are tied to someone by love, and meanwhile we're only tied to them by hate, which we prefer to loneliness. Hate will remain with us so long as we do not accept that loneliness is our only possible or indeed necessary fate. Wow, that's a really interesting quote. Hate is preferable to loneliness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so I th- he, you, you might have said this in the beginning, but is this a first novel? Uh, no. This is... He's been writing... He was, he's writing for a long time before this. It was just... Uh, this is from 1986, and I think he had a much... I think he probably started in the 60s. That's interesting, because I, I feel like some of the... Maybe it's reflected in his other books, but some of the stuff I was like, if this is a first novel, then this is like, you know, stealing from his journals and stuff like that, you know? Like, there's just, like, sentences in there where it's just like... It feels like, you know, wrote it down. Yeah, yeah. That I little that voice. that might just be his style. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if you read like, uh, anything by Kundera, but that's kind of similar to that too, where like, uh, they can break off into these tangents, but they're really profound. Like, um, so I'd say like, it's hard to sum up my feelings in this book. Like it's disjointed. It's not flashy, but it's seriousness kind of creeps up on you, forces you to think. How'd you, um, how did it come to you? Uh, you know, it's just another one of those, uh, judging by the uh spine i look for the novels by vintage international yep it's uh, a good i label. trust them yeah yeah but um i can see their logo now <laughs> uh so where this novel really got me though was with the pace and the trajectory of the pose like of the prose sorry i wouldn't like jump to say that it's the best example of the like human thought process but you know it felt closer to the pattern and cadence of my own thoughts than anything else I can remember. So like personally, it felt that way to me. Um, like it's mostly free moving. It catches snags from time to time and drifts into this unusual, profound seriousness. But um, this is I how God. I would think if I was in, in a concentration camp. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but I would say that Klima, like he's awesome at positing some powerful philosophical questions about the meaning behind like an individual's thoughts, feelings, and actions. And that's kind of where I related to it the most. Um, yeah, I would recommend it. I, I liked it. Um, it was only, I think it's like 220 pages. So it wasn't super long. Uh, it was a, yeah, it kept a good pace throughout. It jumps around a lot. Uh, but yeah, I liked it. 
Cool. I like the title too. Now that you've like described more about it, loving garbage is is really yeah. interesting. And <laughs> and was is this, is this a translation? Was he was it originally written some some other language? Uh yeah, it was. Tra- it's translated. Um, okay. so like him and Kundera, like they could only publish their works outside of the uh, Czechoslovakia. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were translated. They had more success internationally because of that. I mean, they had no success in their countries. I, I don't right. know if there was, you know, I don't know if there was underground circulations of their novels uh, inside their home countries. That would be cool. Yeah, maybe. I don't I really like know to too much. That. Yeah, I, that would be interesting to research too. This is actually getting into a little bit of territory for the next book that I'm doing, but I that's a, cool. that's the only thing I'm going to say. <laughs> spoiler, <laughs> not spoiler. Some okay, some hints. Cool. Well, that was that was great job, and yeah, loving garbage. I would definitely check that out. Yeah. So, uh, all right. Yeah. So the. Thanks for listening, everyone. This has been another episode of Shitty Book Reports. Um, so if you like the podcast, if you want to give us some feedback, send us some um, hate mail or <laughs> anything <laughs> like that, you know, uh, hit us up at sbrthepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we're also SBR the Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Spotify, iTunes, everything. Uh, yeah. Let us know how you feel. Thank you.